0: Well, it is a joy to gather with God's people and uh, an added joy, of course, to study God's Word together. Uh, In case you're wondering where Carrie and Pam are uh, this Sunday, they're enjoying a little bit of a vacation, um, long time planned out to California just to visit Nate and Brittany and see the grandkids there. So, you can be praying for them, pray that they'll be refreshed in the Lord. But for our time this morning, um, and perhaps, Lord willing, next Sunday as well, I want to for our time in the Word, draw our attention then to a passage in the book of 1 Peter. So, you can take your Bibles there and turn with me to 1 Peter, specifically chapter 4 this morning. 1 Peter 4, why 1 Peter 4? Well, a few reasons. For one, um, for those of you who were at the men's conference, Brad Claussen stole the text I was going to preach, um, 1 Corinthians 2. So back to the drawing board, but another reason is because this book, 1 Peter, is what we're currently studying on Friday nights with the young adults and the devoted group, and it's been so encouraging to me and to us, and so I wanted to share that with you all. But perhaps beyond all of that, the most compelling reason this morning is that Carrie just happened to so nicely last week on Easter Sunday tee me up for this text… <laughs> Um if you remember on Easter Sunday, celebrating the resurrection, he ended our time in his second sermon, so to speak, in first Peter at the end of chapter three, and so, who am I to deny the providence of God? <laughs> we'll be looking this morning then at first Peter. Actually, for the next two weeks, probably the next two paragraphs, so 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, but for this morning, we'll only cover the first six verses. And so, let's read those together as we begin. 1 Peter 4, if you're there, verses 1 through 6. Peter writes, "'Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose.'" "...because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries." In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the excess, the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has been, has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Now, just a brief word of context in case you weren't here last Sunday. At the end of chapter 3, perhaps you remember we saw that Peter is essentially encouraging Christians by pointing us as the church to the fact that Jesus has defeated every evil power through His resurrection and ascension. You remember, that's what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. In fact, that's what we celebrate every Sunday, (laughs) Jesus' resurrection. And that's what Carrie ended last week saying to make the simple point Peter was making there, Jesus is victorious over all evil. The resurrection is God's exclamation point, so to speak, on His victory over sin, suffering, and Satan. Isn't that encouraging? I mean, we we celebrate that, and we're thankful for that. However, without minimizing, perhaps, or trivializing that great and essential doctrine and truth, I want us this morning to ask the question, so what? So Christ is risen, isn't He? He has conquered, He has defeated sin, Satan, suffering, so what? It sounds almost blasphemous to ask, doesn't it? But but it's a legitimate question because Peter writes this passage that we're looking at this morning to answer that very question. How does Christ's resurrection victory affect my life, affect your life? If you're a Christian here and now, how, how does it shape the way that you walk through this fallen world in this existence? Does your life resemble a victorious Christian life? Is it new? Is it different? Have you wondered that? What difference does the resurrection make when you're alive? I mean, Peter's audience did. After all, if Christ is victorious and we as Christians are supposed to share in that victory, then what should our life look like now? I mean, that question has been answered variously. Uh, by various people. I mean, for those of you who were in the seminar this weekend that Justin Peters put on, on false teachers and the prosperity gospel, you can plug in every error that you heard about this weekend here on the victorious Christian life, and what does that look like? Look, if Christ has won by the power and proclamation of His resurrection, what should we then expect as those who have been raised with Him? It's a legitimate question. I'll ask it this way, to borrow the title of one of Francis Schaeffer's most famous works, How Should We Then Live in Light of Our New Life in Christ? Well, Peter is glad that you asked the question, because notice how he opens chapter 4. Notice, after having just referred in the section we looked at last week, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, after having just talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his victory over all the spiritual powers notice how chapter 4 verse 1 begins with a therefore it begins with a therefore in other words peter now for two paragraphs proceeds to tell us exactly how that resurrection victory should impact our lives here on earth in the flesh and and, and and might we say it's not what we might expect? You see, Peter's view of the victorious Christian life is very different, we might say, perhaps than what many have imagined it to be. What we find out here is that Christ's victory... Dear, Dear Christian, if you're a believer, if you share in that resurrection tower, does not mean that you can just sit back and do nothing. That's not how Peter paints the Christian walk here, the victorious Christian life. No, the victorious Christian life is not laziness, but readiness. And that is what governs this entire section that we'll be looking at First this morning and the next Sunday as well. But notice, right out of the gate, that the main verb here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, governs this entire paragraph, all six verses, is actually a military term. It's a word that describes the actions one would take in preparation for war. Isn't that an interesting? Verse 1, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, here it is arm yourselves, prepare yourselves, equip yourselves for battle, furnish yourselves for a fight, make yourselves ready with weapons. That's this word. It's related to the word that's often used literally of weapons or an instrument of war, both offensive and defensive. You perhaps remember the gospel of John chapter 18 verse 3 how the Roman soldiers came to take Jesus into custody expecting that His disciples might resist with violence. You remember that account? How did they come? Not with pepper spray. (laughs) They came armed to the teeth, the writer says there, with lanterns and torches and, our word, weapons. But lest we be mistaken, Remember 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, Paul reminds us though that the weapons, our word here, are of our warfare, in the Christian life are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. And in the same way Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 6, perhaps in one of the most famous sections where this related word shows up, he commands us to, you remember, put on the armor of God. It's that same root word there. And so Puritan John Gill writes the apostle speaks to the saints. Listen, and he speaks to you this morning, Christian, as to soldiers who had many enemies to engage with and therefore should put on their armor and be in readiness to meet any attack upon them. That's what this passage is about. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you equipped? And again, this preparation here though has very little to do with literal swords and literal shields. So don't, don't walk away from this morning thinking, okay, Pastor Kevin told me to go buy a gun. I'm gonna go buy a gun. <laughs> that might be helpful to have, but that's not what this passage is commanding you to do. Peter is talking about mental and spiritual warfare. Notice, look at the text. He writes, arm yourselves also with what? With the same purpose. Now, the word here for purpose is a word that refers to someone's mental resolve to do something. It is that language the Bible uses of conviction. It's the language of intention that begins in your mind. I love this. It's actually the word found in Hebrews 4 verse 12. Anybody know it? For the Word of God is able to discern between the thoughts, and here it is, intentions of the heart. It refers to what we have then purposed and resolved in our hearts to do. Therefore, Peter then put plug that into this passage is calling us as Christians because of the resurrection in light of your new life in Christ. He's calling you to prepare. You can't sit back, you can't be mentally lazy. He's he's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. He's already said that. Chapter 1, verse 13. Prepare yourself with a wartime mentality. Arm your minds to the teeth. Notice, though, once again, how how that mentality then is specifically described here. Notice, specifically, our mentality should be, Peter includes here this little word, the same, you see that? The same mental resolve as who? Jesus. You are to have, then you are to equip yourself, the same resolve that Jesus had while He was here on earth in the flesh. So, what weapons did Jesus carry around? That is what we're to resolve ourselves with, to fortify ourselves with. And what was Jesus mentally prepared to do when He came in His incarnation? Jesus prepared, are you ready for this? to suffer. To suffer. So Let me pause here then and ask the obvious question. Where does suffering fit in to your conception, beloved, of the victorious Christian life? Does it have a place? Do you have a category for that? Because the Bible clearly does. Beloved, Isaiah 50 verse 7 says that Jesus set his face like flint for suffering. That's the language of mental resolve. Philippians chapter 2, no less, says that it was a specific kind of attitude. It was a specific kind of mentality. It was a specific resolve that led Jesus to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then more than once in the Gospels did Christ make clear to His disciples that He had come specifically to die, to die first, to suffer to the end. John 13, verse 1 records, Jesus knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world. John writes, He loved them to the end that was his resolve. Is that your resolve today, Christian? Or are are you resolved to maybe get the most out of this life as you possibly can? Look, this was Christ's purpose. This was his intention. This was his resolve. My friends, Jesus, we could put it this way was resolved to carry out God's will no matter what it would cost him, even if it meant his death. And we know that it did. Jesus was prepared to suffer rather than to sin. And you and I must be as well if we're Christians, if we're in Christ, if we have new life. That is an implication from the resurrection, Peter says. And this is what he commands us to do. We must have the same conviction that Jesus had when he was here on earth. We must fortify our minds with the thought that it is better to die in God's will than to live in compromise. Dear Christian, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Now at this point perhaps I've lost some of you already maybe you're sitting there wondering if Peter has contradicted himself you're still stuck on last week I mean Jesus has already won the war what in the world are we doing here talking about preparing for battle He's won Victory is his we know that He's sat down at the right hand of the Father Why do we still need to arm ourselves well, again Don't you love the Bible? (laughs) Peter anticipates our question, and he answers it for us in this passage. Imagine that. So, for the rest of our time this morning, I want to show you three reasons why you should prepare. Three reasons Christians should be ready for suffering in light of their new life in Christ. Three reasons, and for the sake of time, I'll just give them to you as we go. Reason number one, notice the first part of verse one that we kind of skipped over a little bit, but it's this, we must be prepared for suffering because of our new commander. That's reason number one, our new commander. Notice the first clause, skipped over it because it's not the main idea. It supports this command to arm yourselves. Peter writes, since Christ has suffered... In the flesh, because of that, arm yourself. That provides with provides us with the first reason, Christian. You must be prepared for suffering this life. Newsflash: because this world hates your new commander in chief. We know that, don't we? And Peter's reasoning here couldn't be any clearer because. Jesus suffered. You too, if you stand with Him, if you fight with Him, if you identify with Him, should also then prepare yourself for the same. (laughs) Now, having been in the Gospel of John again on Sunday mornings here, this is not a new concept. John 15, just listen, Jesus would teach there if the world hates you. Listen, you you know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's not personal. (laughs) If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. He reminds them, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master, and we might add here, nor a soldier than his commander." If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who has sent me. Friends, this is the, this is the logic of spiritual warfare. If you stand with Jesus on the battlefield, you will draw enemy fire. They will shoot right through you to get to him that's just the reality that's what the bible teaches and so peter says that you must prepare if your commander in chief suffered at the hands of sinners you will not be exempt so let me let me let me ask the question this morning have some of us have some of us imagined that we would be the one christian in the history of christianity who could faithfully serve Christ, and, and also be liked by the world. Is that, has that been you? Because there's no such thing. Christian James says that friendship with the world is enmity towards God. If you have been raised with Christ, then, beloved, you are in a spiritual war. That's a fact. Whether you believe it, whether you see it, whether you feel it. If you are in Christ, and you're a new creature, and you share in His resurrection, and you have a hope to come, this is, this is true. You're in a battle. You live in hostile enemy territory. In fact, I know you haven't been studying First Peter with us on Friday nights, but maybe some of you have, but Peter has been saying this all along in his letter. You are not home in this earth. Is this your home, Christian? You're not home. This is not friendly ground. You are an alien and a stranger and a sojourner. So you must arm yourself with the same resolve that Jesus had. The command Peter gives here is simply this, don't be naive. Or to borrow from later in verse 12, beloved, don't be surprised. Why are you surprised? You know how you don't be surprised? Be prepared. Be prepared for suffering because you have a new commander. Because you have a new commander. That's the first reason. Peter gives another reason here that begins in the second half of verse 1 all the way down through verse 5. And it's the longest one that we'll cover this morning. But this one has two parts. But we'll just call it this. The second reason is our new conflict. We are to prepare because our new life, listen, brings with it a new conflict, and that conflict has both an internal aspect to it and an external aspect to it. You have a new inner conflict, verses 1 through 3, and a new outer conflict, verses 4 and 5. But let's look at the first, the new inner conflict. Notice. You know, I'm reminded of a quote by J.C. Ryle in one of my all-time favorite books, Holiness, it sits above my desk, actually. it's he, he writes this, A true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience, but war within. He may be known by his warfare as well as by his peace. And that's exactly right. Peter says here, there is a new conflict within that is birthed when you've been birthed from above. And Peter goes on, notice, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because, here's our second reason, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, Now, let's not be confused here. This needs a little bit of explanation because some have misunderstood this and interpreted it as what happens only once a Christian dies and is glorified and perfected because then and only then, they argue, is he finally delivered from sin and ceased from sin. And you get that. I understand how people could arrive at that conclusion because the phrase here certainly sounds like this person is no longer struggling with his sin anymore. And so, some have then, because of that, seen the suffering referred to here by Peter as suffering unto death and resulting in the glorification of the believer and that he's now perfected because he's dead. Well, the problem with that view is not so much that it's not accurate or theologically true. The problem is This little thing called the context of our passage. Look at verse 2. It doesn't fit with what Paul just goes on, or Peter goes on to say in verse 2. He tells us in the very next breath of the result of what happens after this ceasing from sin. Notice, he says, The one who has suffered or ceased has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That guy's still alive in the flesh. So clearly, whatever Peter means here by the phrase ceased from sin, it's supposed to result in a new lifestyle lived with new purposes here on earth, which means then this can't be referring to the believer's death and glorification. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't have mentioned the rest of the time in the flesh. Do you understand that? And, and by the way, the, that phrase "in the flesh." Don't be confused if you've read a lot of Paul, as Kerry pointed out last Sunday. The way Peter uses it in his letter, it's more consistently. It, it's, it just describes the life lived in this fallen world. It doesn't necessarily mean it's sin. And, and that's just what it means here in verse one, here in verse two, and here in verse six. It's just this our earthly existence. So, all of that to say, just to summarize for you, I believe Peter is simply saying that the one who has, listen, follow me, the one who has suffered, experienced suffering like Jesus has, at one time has stopped, ceased living in and practicing sin like He used to. That's what the perfect tense of this verb communicates. In other words, we could say what characterized Him before before Christ, before His new life, before the resurrection, has ceased to characterize Him now. And He has now had a definitive change in relationship with sin. He's changed it on His Facebook status. Beloved, the one who suffers like Jesus has ceased from being under sin's dominion. I mean isn't that encouraging Christian? That is you. that is what has happened If you share in Jesus' resurrection life, that is what defines your existence now he He now answers to a new commander he he has a a revolutionary break with what the Bible calls the old man this is this is what the bible teaches. This is what the bible means in 1 John three nine when he writes no one in who is born of God practices sin. It's not 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 sinless perfection, but practice. And in the same spiritual reality is is mentioned in Romans six verse seven, where Paul describes. He says, "For he who has died is freed." Christian, you've been freed by the power of the resurrection because Jesus is alive. You have been freed from sin's dominion. This is your new dominion. Sin is no longer master over you. You've been raised with Christ. You're not a slave anymore to that. You have rebelled against sin's tyranny. I love that. You see, this this is the new Christians. The new. Inner conflict because we have been delivered from the power and the practice of sin. You know, maybe we're helped by Puritan John Gill when he writes this and 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 helps us just kind of clarify what what is meant here in this new dominion. But he says such a man has ceased from sin, not from the being and indwelling of it in him, nor from the burden of it on him, nor from a continual war with it in him nor even from slips and falls by it or into it. But here's what he's been freed from. But as from the guilt of it and the obligation to punishment by it through the death of Christ, so from the servitude and dominion of it. Maybe Sinclair Ferguson is easier to understand here. He writes in the Christian life, the Christian has died to sin. This does not mean that sin has died in him. It remains, and it is still sin. But what has changed is not its presence within our hearts, but its status. It no longer reigns. And our relationship to it, we're no longer its slaves. Isn't that great? Christian, you have the power to say no. No. You have a new conflict. This new internal conflict is characterized by this new dominion, but now evidenced, notice, by a new desire. Look at verse (laughs) 2. Look at verse 2 so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Beloved, Peter says here very plainly that there's now this new conflict between the lusts of men in your heart and and the will of God. Listen, beloved, that was not there before. Do you understand that? That was not there before. Before in your new before your new life in Christ, you you never really put up a fight. <laughs> You never, you never really resisted. You were never really grieved by sin. You gladly, maybe secretly, but you gladly cooperated with sin's plans. You were sin's ally. There's no real conflict within. What your flesh wanted, you wanted also. That's what unbelievers do. But now, now that you have been. Well, but Peter says, to you: now that you have ceased from sin and been raised with Christ, now that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, your allegiance has changed. You have sided with God in your heart. Things, things are different, aren't they? At least they should be. The, the moment you came to Christ... Peter says a new battle began in your heart and, and and all of a sudden what you used to agree with turned into first Peter chapter 2 verse 11 fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul what you once cherished you now fight and my friend this is why we must This is why we prepare, because this is coming. It's already here. And dear Christian, it's called sanctification. This is is what marks the victorious new life of a genuine believer. There is now, there is now a struggle. Look, don't be discouraged by that. Be encouraged. There's a struggle. You used to lay down. Now you fight. Don't be dismayed. Rejoice if your heart struggles when you see sin. It is evidence that victory is at hand because of the resurrection. Don't Look this happens all the time. Don't be discouraged by that, <laughs> that, that, that it troubles you. <laughs> what, a, what a grace. Don't put your weapons down. Pick them up. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Rise up with renewed vigor and put to death the deeds of the body. Because you can. You can now. Thank God for that. The moment you ceased from sin, you declared war on the old man. But notice, notice how this new internal conflict is marked not only by a new dominion and this new desire, but also a new direction. Verse 3, I love this, it doesn't leave you where you are. Verse 3, it changes the course of your life. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued, there's the direction language, a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, Literally, the text reads, sufficient time has passed for you to have accomplished these things. You know what Peter's saying there simply? You've, you've, you've wasted enough time. You've wasted enough time pursuing those things. You've wasted enough time walking in this direction. You know what you need to do? Turn around. Don't keep going. Go that way. You've, you've had your fill prior to Christ of sin, and it is more than enough for a lifetime. And if you, if, if you were writing your biography, you know what Peter would be saying here? He'd be saying, he'd be saying you, you've written enough pages on that junk. It's time to write a new chapter. It's time for a new direction. Your new life in Christ means now that you are to prepare yourself then for a very different walk. That is why we prepare. And notice, in case this is tripping you up, this list of sins, I mean, in case you read that list of vices, sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, and are tempted to think, hey, man, that's the stuff that goes on in college campuses. I don't do that. I've never done that. I've never been invited to those parties. In case you're tempted to imagine that Peter is only condemning those really bad sins of some frat boy nightclub lifestyle, what you need to understand here in Peter's context is that he's not being exhaustive for one, but neither is he really just naming the fringe extreme sins in his day. In fact, I would actually argue he's naming things that are very normal associated with a an upstanding Roman citizen. That's what he would have participated in. In fact, Listen to what Peter Davids says about this. He helps us when he writes in his commentary, the final term in the list gives not not just another vice, that abominable idolatries, but but also the context in which the other sins in that list could take place that's in connection with this idol worship. In other words, it's things like this that happened. Listen, family religious celebrations, that's where all that stuff happened. Look, imagine a Christian just saying, nope, sorry, can't go to that birthday party. Gilded feasts, th- those are official meetings of trade guilds and civic festival days, might all include such things taking place in the temples of the various divinities like Dionysius, the god of wine. So, you think about that, and you think that that's what Peter is describing here. This would be like, let's put it in contemporary terms, right? It would be like it would be like for those of you who work in a company, hey, your your buddies after afterwards are inviting you, your coworkers, to talk shop, talk business, and network at some uh, adult nightclub or something. I can't, I can't go there. What do you mean? Or you're being asked to participate and to affirm some diversity training for LGBTQ people at your job this is what we're talking about. That's that's what Peter has in mind in this list, and so he's not describing just the fringes of pagan society, things that even moral unbelievers would, would, would shy away from. That's not what he's talking about. This is normal. This would have characterized a respected, upstanding member of Roman society, these things, which is why, if you notice, in verse 4 it makes sense doesn't it that they are shocked then that Christians no longer go to such things it makes sense and if that doesn't clarify the issue that at the very least the first two words in this list are broad enough to indict all of us in our bc days right before christ you no know, sensuality just refers to a lack of moral restraint a lack of control and 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 lust is just a word for a strong sinful desire you know what you know what peter's saying here to put it plainly peter is just talking about a life that is lived for self are you selfish <laughs> have you been selfish i mean that's all the unbelieving world knows How to live for myself, me, myself, and I, the holy, unholy trinity. (laughs) I live for self and not for God. And Peter's point here is that you've had enough time, Christian. You've had enough time doing that. Look at your life. You've had enough time doing that. You've squandered enough days in sin and selfishness already. Look outside of yourself, Christian. Your new life in your resurrection life is different. It's to be different. But don't you don't you find it in your heart that you you'd love to have those years back. When you weren't when you weren't a believer. Look, some of us have been Regenerate, maybe saved early on in Christ or early on in our lives, and that is a grace from god and but no matter how early, listen, beloved, you came to Jesus. I think every one of us would say here it's not early enough. I wish it would have been sooner, and so Peter says here, this is why you must now prepare because it's long overdue. you're in your new direction your new lifestyle. It's long overdue. We must prepare because of our new commander and because of this new conflict within, but there's another part to this conflict. Notice, there is a conflict without that is coming as well. It begins in our hearts, but it's going to affect our life and then our place in society, as we already sort of talked about. Look at verse 4 briefly, our external or outer conflict. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. Look, the response that the world has towards Christians who have ceased participating in the normal normal sins, the -the run-of-the-mill sins of society is described here by one word that means to be astonished because something is strange. That's kind of the idea here. It's related to the New Testament word for stranger. In other words, the world thinks you and I are weird. <laughs> weird for being here? Weird for not doing that? Notice why, because because explicitly you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. In other words, your life of ceasing from sin and not increasing in sin is strange to them. That's what everybody else does. What do you mean you don't do that anymore? They find it weird that you don't just keep on jumping off the same cliff with them into the same filth they used to. That's the language here. By the way, the language is intensifying. Notice, back in verse 3, I pointed out that the word for pursued there is one of direction. It's a walking term. Notice, Peter now switches to the word for running. You see that? And don't you find that to be true in the culture and in the world in order to keep up with the status quo of sin? Isn't it true? You, You have to pick up the pace. You can't just stay the same pace Sure, it, begin, it begins with tolerance, but sooner or later it demands participation and then hearty approval. That is the progression of Romans chapter 1. And notice here the term excesses or literally floods, uh, as one author put it, a picture is a strong and expressive metaphor, especially in countries where after violent rain the gutters are suddenly swollen and they're pour their contents together with violence into a common sewer. Just picture that. Peter paints that picture of, listen, people who, it's crazy, I know, but this is the world who are plunging themselves into an open sewer. That's normal for a world without the gospel. Sin is like jumping into a raging river of raw sewage and then thinking nothing of it, thinking this is great. (laughs) And they think you're weird. (laughs) But look, more than thinking you're weird, Peter says here, do you notice they malign you? malign The world finds weird, they eventually attack. But Peter reminds us very quickly, look at verse 5, that their actions and their words and their lifestyle are not without consequence. But they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. a play on words here. In fact, back in chapter 3, verse 15, Christians were pulled to be ready to give an account for the hope of the gospel within them. Here, God is said to be the one ready to judge those who will give an account to Him for how they lived. My friend, are you prepared for that? Are you ready for that? Do you know Christ? Do you share in His life? So, Because Christ is risen, because He is one, because we have new life in Him, we must prepare for this new life because of our new commander and because of this new conflict both within and without and finally, very quickly, because, verse 6, of our new confidence. Our new confidence finally Peter says, We must prepare ourselves for this life. Listen, because the gospel has already prepared us for the next life. Notice verse 6 For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now, 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 this this is, again, another potentially confusing verse, if you don't understand it right out the bat, but without getting bogged down in the grammatical details here, allow me just to tell you what it means. Okay? Notice, the dead here in verse 6, necros, it's the normal term just for those who are physically dead. Peter is talking about those who are, at the time of his writing, physically dead, but notice what he says of them. He says that they have had, past tense, the gospel preached to them at one point in time. And the implication is while they were still alive. And notice the last part of verse 6, and this is what clarifies it all. Peter says this gospel was preached to them at that point in time so that... Though they are condemned in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. That is why the gospel is preached to anyone, that they might live even though they're condemned by men. The, the text originally, literally reads so that the one, on the one hand, they were condemned by human standards while in the flesh. While on the other hand, they now live by God's standard in the Spirit. See, from man's perspective, while these Christians who died, suffered, were condemned, torn limb to limb, condemned, in a, maybe in a court of law, maybe martyred in this life, in the flesh, on this earth, Peter says, though, that's what they experienced while they were alive. In the flesh, from God's perspective, though they're now physically dead to the world, to God, they're alive. And this is why the gospel is preached. That only the gospel can prepare men to meet the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead and he's ready. Look, he doesn't have to scramble behind the scenes. He can do it right now. I love what the old commentator Selman says here, maybe helps us. He says, in, in the actual experience of the apostles' readers, wrong triumphs over right, right goes to the wall, what is his answer to this dilemma? His answer is that the judge stands at the door, that the wrongdoers will have to give account to him, and that the very reason why Christians, even those who are already dead, had had the gospel preached to them was that whatever the world might say of their troubled and seemingly fruitless lives here on earth, they might live eternally after God's likeness in heaven. Look, Christian, you may be as insignificant as they come today, and then you might suffer a horrible death. But that's not the end. From the world's perspective, that might be a pointless, fruitless existence. What a waste. How ridiculous. But not in God's eyes. If you're in Christ and you're a new creature and you have resurrection hope, we have a new confidence but our suffering in this life, even if it ends in death like Jesus, will result in our triumph in the gospel. Jesus said it himself, Luke 9, 24, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So what is the point? So then let us prepare now. Let us prepare in this life to to suffer, it's okay. Let us prepare now to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Christ because that's the victorious Christian life. That's the victorious Christian life. And one day, beloved, as the old hymn declares, when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue, when this body lies Silent in the grave, and then a nobler, sweeter song and existence will sing God's power to save, "Be alive. That's why we must prepare. We'll look at how next time but the victorious Christian life is a life of readiness, beloved, are you ready it's It's a life of readiness for suffering. Again, next time we'll see. It's a life readiness for service, also. Let me just close here by saying this, my friend: If you don't know Jesus, listen. If the resurrection for you makes no difference at all, if you came to, if you came to church on Sunday last week, but then it just whatever, it doesn't matter. I just continue on in my life. Then I implore you, as as the text has already declared. God will judge the living and the dead. He will do it. And He's ready. There, there is coming a day when, when, you, when you will see and you will know that, that all of your running after your own pleasures is, is but swimming in a puddle of filth, sewage. That is what sin is and does. So won't you leave that life? Won't you leave that? And come, come to Christ. Come to the the clear and flowing springs of the fountain of living waters. Won't you forsake your broken cisterns and come? Come to Christ this morning. Turn from your useless life of striving after emptiness. and Receive resurrection life. So that one day, as we just saw in verse 6, it can be said of you also that though you die physically, you will live. You will live. Let's pray. Father, we are so encouraged by this passage. Lord, the resurrection, it did happen. And then it's not pointless. This is what it looks like. Father, conform our lives and our hearts to this message. Conform us. May these marks of a victorious Christian life be what defines us. Give us a greater hatred for our sin. Grant to us greater power to say no to what we used to do. Help us to walk as we continue in this fallen world. Father, for those who don't know you, we pray that you would open their eyes to see that the life that they now live pursuing their own things is vain. And it'll be gone in a moment. And one day they'll stand before you who's to judge the living and the dead and they will have no answer. They will have no answer for the fact that they spent their entire life swimming in that which is vain. Convict them, Father, and cause them to live. Revive them according to your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.